Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, in the past week, local public health officials issued an overdose spike alert, making Sheriff Michael Heldman's upcoming opioid update event all the more timely and critical for the future of the community. We'll learn more. Also this morning, Representative Bob Latta shares his take on last week's congressional hearing into TikTok after its CEO was grilled by members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Could the platform that claims to have 150 million users in the U.S. soon be banned in this country? And we get a preview of upcoming shows and events at the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts this spring. Heather Kloh will tell us what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, March 27th, 2023. So here's what you want to hear the first thing on a Monday morning. New research paper claims that a staggering number of employees could see their careers impacted by the rise of artificial intelligence. Uh, The uh, chat GDP artificial intelligence bot that everybody is buzzing about. A shockingly intelligent chat bot released back in November has uh, already upended the world. And according to a report in the New York Post, researchers from OpenAI and the University of Pennsylvania are arguing in a new research paper paper that, get this, 80% of the U.S. workforce could have at least 10% of their work tasks affected by the introduction of this uh, chatbot, chat GDP, or GBT, GPT. They, whatever it is, they also found that about 19% of workers may find at least half of their duties impacted by GPT or general purpose technologies. That's what that stands for, in case you were wondering. Uh, Researchers also found that higher income jobs will likely have greater exposure, but that it will span across almost all industries. The, uh, The paper examines exposure of work tasks to AI without distinguishing between labor augmenting or labor displacing effects. In other words, they come up with these numbers. In some cases, the artificial intelligence bot may replace a worker. In some cases, it may just augment their work, which... Those would be two very different things. If it augments your work and makes it easier to get done what you need to get done, maybe that's not such a bad thing. If it displaces you entirely, that would not be a bad, uh, not be a good thing. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, that's high-paying jobs. At the other end of the spectrum, more low-paying jobs like rail maintenance workers, cooks, mechanics, floor layers, meat packers, and stonemasons have no exposure whatsoever. So, those are the uh, <laughs> careers that will not be impacted. I don't know, rail safety workers? Is that what, did they actually uh, include that in the list? Rail safety workers? Mm-hmm. Uh, rail maintenance workers? Okay. <laughs> Just saying. That's what you want to hear first thing in the morning. Your job, your days, and your job may be numbered thanks to artificial intelligence. Somebody, uh, the other day, I saw a report over the weekend about this whole artificial intelligence revolution that has been unleashed on the world just in the past several months. And uh, one uh, AI expert said, uh, 
that there was reason to be concerned for the future of humanity or some such. I mean, basically, that's what he said, that the <laughs> that robots replacing humans is a very real possibility. Well, there's something cheery for you for thing in the morning. Uh, here's a perfect example. Levi Strauss and company, the jeans maker, famous jeans maker, uh, has a an artificial uh, an artificial new model starting later this year. The popular brand will use people generated by AI to model their clothing. The hope is to present different body types, different ages, different skin colors, so that customers can see how certain clothes will look on their, you know, on every individual. Uh, based on body size and color and, you know, everything. While they will not completely replace humans, the company says that offering a range of digital models for their clothing could help create a more personal and inclusive shopping experience. So there you go. That's a prime example of AI impacting the world around us. What else is going on? Among the first things you need to know... Get your Monday morning started, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. If all of this is stressing you out, if all of this uh, possibility of uh, artificial intelligence, computers uh, replacing you uh, in your job, making humans obsolete, if all of that is stressing you out, maybe you need to move to a more tranquil city. Travel Bag has released its uh, latest list of the most tranquil cities in the world. Uh, They look at air quality, opportunities to connect with nature, low levels of noise and light pollution, tranquil cities. The number one place on Earth, the most tranquil city, according to this list, Juneau, Alaska. A 100% score for air quality is uh, one of the things. And, of course, it's very remote, so low noise, low light pollution, that kind of thing. So Juneau, Alaska, number one, certainly a lot of opportunities to connect with nature in Juneau, Alaska. Uh, Other top cities include Auckland, New Zealand, Perth, Australia, uh, Phuket, Thailand, I think is how you pronounce it, I don't know, because I've never been there, (laughs) and oddly enough, Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia, really? Tranquil city? I mean, it's a lovely town, don't get me wrong, but... I wouldn't necessarily consider Atlanta tranquil, um, but that's what it says. Cities that ranked poorly include Cairo, Egypt, Lima, Peru, Manila, Mumbai, and Ho Chi Minh City at the bottom of the list. So, places you don't want to go to relax and unwind. Tranquil cities. I don't know if I want to live in Juneau, Alaska, but it might be a place to visit, so it's for someplace tranquil. I can't believe that we have to tell people this, but in this day and age, uh, a warning from the makers of fruit roll-ups. Have you heard about this? Apparently, the makers of the snack, the popular snack food, are warning people not to eat the plastic that the fruit snack is wrapped in. Someone on TikTok claimed... That the plastic is edible. <laughs> the uh, the video 
is one of several TikTok clips making the rounds about unique ways to eat fruit roll-ups. And uh, among them, users will freeze the fruit roll-ups for an icy, uh, an icy sweet treat. Okay, I can see that. I can see freezing fruit roll-ups. But, um, oh, by the way, uh, one of the other uh, trends, I guess, is adding a chunk of ice cream in the center of the fruit roll-up and then, you know, wrapping it all up like a crepe. Um, So that actually sounds kind of tasty, too. Um, But the one that has garnered the most attention and the one that the company uh, is responding to is a a user who stated that it was perfectly fine to eat the plastic that goes in between the fruit roll-ups when you take them out of the uh, pack, when you take them out of the package, you know, they're separated by a, a piece of plastic so they don't stick together. One user claimed that it was perfectly fine to eat the plastic when the snack is frozen, that uh, it is edible. And the company says, no, it is not. Do not eat the plastic. I can't believe that we have to tell people that, but here we are. And this is big news. I mean, big news. This should be the lead story in the news uh, all day long today, because this is absolutely huge. If you have ever been to the Beer Barrel Saloon in Putin Bay, they proudly declare that they are the home of the world's longest bar, but not anymore. Yes, that's right. This is breaking news. This is big stuff. A new Guinness World Record has been set by a new distillery just south of Nashville. With the opening of the Humble Baron in Shelbyville, Tennessee last week, The uh, folks at Guinness stop by to measure the length of their bar, and as it turns out, they they now can make the claim of the world's longest bar. The Beer Barrel Saloon in Putin Bay previously held the title for their 405-foot-long bar. This one, just outside of Nashville, is now 518 feet. So, a... 25-year record held by the Beer Barrel Saloon in Putin bay has been eclipsed. Big, big news. What, what will they do? I mean, that's like, it's like right on the front of their website. It's their big attraction at the Beer Barrel Saloon in, uh, in Putin bay No longer the world's longest bar. I know. I am shocked, crushed. Um, I, I just don't know what to say to that. Just ahead of the busy spring and summer season at Putin Bay, uh, it is wow. It's almost like a time of mourning for partiers in Putin Bay. It's no longer the world's longest bar. It just doesn't sound as good when you say the world's second longest bar, Putin Bay. But there you go. Uh, for better or for worse, some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started. 
I'm Dave James on the Ohio News Network. There was a devastating fire just after midnight Saturday night in Canton. Lena Lai with Owen and Affiliate WKYC-TV in Cleveland reports. Four people have died following a house fire in Canton. The county coroner's office confirmed that two adults and two children were killed in a home on Everhard Road Northwest. Three pets also died during the fire. No names have been released and the cause of the fire is under investigation. Wind gusts up to 60 miles per hour Saturday toppled trees and power lines in Ohio, and as of early this morning, there were still more than 50,000 customers statewide without power. Some will not be restored till Wednesday. A couple thousand folks in Geauga County east of Cleveland are still without power. I'm standing here watching. I'm watching the trees, and they're going snap, snap, snap. I was actually driving home from work, and I... I drove through the storm in Chesterland, and I've never seen anything quite like that. Other hard-hit areas include Trumbull and Ashtabula counties in northeast Ohio and Athens, Lancaster, and Marietta in southeast Ohio. Bowling Green State University women's basketball player Alyssa Brett was punched by Memphis's Jamira Schutz in the handshake line following the Falcons' 73-60 win over the Tigers at a women's NIT game in Bowling Green last Thursday. That incident was turned over to BGSU police. The university says that Memphis player has been charged with assault. I'm Dave James on the Ohio News Network. So our cover story this morning, you recall last week, local public health officials issued an overdose spike alert, making Sheriff Michael Heldman's upcoming opioid update event all the more timely and critical for the future of the community. Sheriff Heldman is with us in the studio this morning. And Thanks very much for uh, dropping by. We appreciate it. Glad to be um, here. It was something like a half a dozen uh, overdoses reported just in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, obviously, that is very concerning for a city this size. It is, and we, we have been uh, kind of talking about it. We've uh, the Adamus Board, the Health Department, everybody's been kind of looking at things. And so it, it kind of just kind of, it's ironic this Thursday, the 30th, we're having this community awareness event mm-hmm. about overdoses, about what is going on and what we can do, and to let people know what is out there. And uh, fortunately, we have a speaker this year who is uh, really uh, kind of a expert on this. I yeah. Uh, also with us uh, on the line this morning is uh, Chief uh, Tom Sinan, Chief of Police for the Newtown Police Department in Hamilton County, who has made national headlines for the way he has attacked this problem in his community. And uh, Chief Sinan, thanks very much for uh, taking the time uh, for us this morning as well. Talk a little bit about how your approach, uh, like we said, that has garnered national headlines uh, sort of takes a, a, a different look than the traditional law enforcement uh, angle on this. Well, sir, good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I'm a chief of a very small town 11 miles east of downtown Cincinnati. I had seen an entire family, a mother and all three of her sons, die from addiction, mm-hmm. and that kind of really spurred me into action. We in law enforcement are often on the front lines. We're often looked at as the to take on this issue. But if you think about it, our tools for addiction really are a gun, taser, handcuff, and jail. It's not something that deals really with a chronic mental medical health issue. And that's what we did here. We kind of shifted it from the law enforcement itself perspective to more of a mental medical health condition. We formed a community coalition 
many of the aspects led by law enforcement because we can be the connector of pieces. And we took a public health approach, connected pieces to a continuum care model. And this was a community that when we first started a coalition saw 25 to 20 to 25 overdoses a week in the Cincinnati Hamilton County area. Fentanyl, carfentanyl hits, one of the first places in the United States to see it. 50 to 70 overdoses a week, over 500 people die every year. This year with the coalition, we've been together for eight years, started with about a dozen people. Now it's 400 individuals, 150 separate organizations. And last year, we went from over a little over 500 deaths down to 400 deaths. So we've seen a 16% reduction in overdose deaths from this community project, the lowest number since 2016. So bringing the community together, law enforcement being that nucleus, connecting the pieces of continuing care model seems to have made a difference. So uh, that is especially significant because, as we know, Ohio is uh, has historically been one of the hardest hit uh, states mm. by the uh, opioid epidemic. And uh, in general, I believe the, uh, the numbers uh, bear this out, that uh, opioid deaths uh, have actually been on the rise statewide. So to buck that trend uh, at any level, uh, nearly 20% is, is certainly nothing to shake a stick at. So how do you so how do you do do this and how do you approach this differently uh through your model because like you said uh typically law enforcement um enforcement of this is with handcuffs and jail time and 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 so on and the fact of the matter is this is still an illegal activity so how do you change that narrative well, that's the challenge, and I'm going to be honest, it's a struggle. You have to struggle with all your ideologies, you have to struggle with your philosophy, and you really have to struggle with what your role is. And it has to go from that law enforcement perspective, necessarily taking people to jail, to can we find a better way to serve our community, keep people alive, and make our community more more effective, more efficient? And we found that by changing this kind of, a, it's like a partnership first started with law enforcement and public health, but that's not just the solution. It can't just be one ideology or one section of it. It has to be all the pieces together. And where law enforcement plays a really significant role, and the sheriff knows this because he's a leader in his community. People come to him. They trust him. They trust law enforcement to know the system. And we are really connected to every part of it. You're connected to the, to the community itself, those families, those people, that are individuals that are overdosing. You're connected to hospital systems, public health, to criminal justice to recovery housing. You really have a connection to all of that. If law enforcement takes that kind of lead, unfortunately, we are the ones taking the lead. I wish it was the medical community. I wish it was health insurance, but it's not. And we on the front lines of law enforcement see the damage every day. So unfortunately, it has to be us that takes that lead. And if we can do that and connect the pieces, you really build this continuum care model, almost like a health system, but law enforcement's kind of leading and linking it. My goal with this is, one, to change the perspective of addiction as a mental medical health condition, ease the burden on law enforcement. And, yes, it's not necessarily enforcing the law, but what it's doing is connecting people to better care and better outcomes in the long term. Now, uh, Sheriff Heldman, you have uh, locally we have implemented some of this uh, philosophy uh, here right. uh, to to this point uh, with some of the coalitions that have been formed locally. Right, we have with our Animus Board, we have and with the Family Resource Center, we have developed several different resources which would be available for people to look at and be hands-on with these people on Thursday evening. One that comes to mind uh, quickly is uh, called the lead. And whenever our office or the Finley Police Department has an investigation of an overdose, an overdose death, 
we have we make contact we have a form we forward it right to the health department and to lead and they get a uh, information where they send people an officer and someone from uh, family resource center out to talk with these people how challenging is it to change that law enforcement mindset into something and and Chief Sinan, I would imagine that that you uh, face this uh, in your department as well. Uh, so I'll ask both of you how how challenging is it to change that mindset uh, to this kind of holistic type of approach? It's very challenging because, as the chief has been saying, it's always we arrest, take to jail, yeah. prosecute, go to jail, and and and, and there is some I, I think from the general public, uh, for example. Uh, again, last week when public health officials issued this overdose spike alert and uh, issued some of the uh, guidance, one of the uh, one of the things uh, that they put out there is don't use alone. And that, again, sounded very um, normalizing, almost like we're normalizing something that is that shouldn't be normalized. And how, yeah, how do you convince people that? A needle exchange or Narcan exactly. or whatever We've had is, those conversations. is the proper thing to do. It's hard for me to accept because for all my years, I right. have always been taught differently. And you'd, you have to get grasp. Everyone needs to grasp that this is not just criminal, but it's also psychological. It's mental health. It's alcohol, drug addiction, all these things that we need to look at differently mm-hmm. that these people can get help. Otherwise people can continue to die. And, and chief sign not just within law enforcement, within the general uh, community at large, uh, how difficult is this to sell? Oh, oh, the sheriff hit it on the head. It, it's just challenging all the way around. And what I tell people is in law enforcement, we are challenged with many social issues, whether it's poverty, homelessness, domestic violence, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, we experience every aspect of this. So law enforcement really is about, um, it's about people. And it's not just enforcing laws, but I struggle with much of this. And my thing is, as long as you can struggle with it, keep an open mind, we can find solutions. The public itself, if we change our perspective, then generally the public will follow along. It takes a little bit of time. It took us eight years really to make an impact. So it is a long-term solution that you got to really work on, and it takes leaders like the sheriff, it takes leaders in police, policing and other public health officials to come out, build those coalitions, and convince the community this is the right thing to do. And to be fair, when you see the numbers actually go down, I'm sure that that uh, goes a long way in terms of getting people on board, quote-unquote. Oh, I'm t- I saw people die, an entire family. Yeah. The last brother was, we tried to save him, he we narcaned him the night before. We took him to jail. Next morning, got out and died. Mm. At some point, you have to realize what you're doing is not working. And then, are you just holding on to this ideology that I got to hold? I got to keep doing this because, quote unquote, that's my role as law enforcement. Right. We have to kind of redefine it, which is the challenge. But if we can redefine what our role is and kind of take this burden off of law enforcement itself and, and put it to more longer term solutions with recovery housing, with experts, peer mentors peer navigators, people that we can link and then carry on that service so that person can get into active recovery. That's the goal. And and like you said, we are now seeing that a double-digit decrease anywhere in the United States is pretty significant. Yeah. But again, it took us eight years, 400 people, 150 separate organizations. We still have addiction. We still have overdose. But 
we're mitigating a little bit on that death part. And, and the thing is, if we can keep this going, then maybe we can get more people in active recovery and see a, see a bigger impact. Move it in the uh, in the right direction. So, yeah, uh, right. I, again, uh, Sheriff Feldman, this uh, will uh, be the presentation uh, for the uh, opioid uh, update event, which is happening later this week on Thursday. Thursday right? Give us all the details. 530 with the resource tables, 630. The presentation begins. And that will be where? And it will be at the University of Finley Student Union. Okay. Uh, and again, it's open to all, open anyone to who... Encourage everyone to attend. Anyone and everyone, because we're all touched by this. Uh, we've got a link up for more information about it on our webpage. Again, uh, Chief Tom Sinan, the Newtown Police Department in Hamilton County, will be uh, one of the uh, featured speakers. Uh, Chief Sinan, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. Sheriff Michael Hubman, thank you, as always. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you, Chief. Thank you. Representative Bob Latta joins us this morning to share his take on last week's congressional hearing into TikTok. The CEO of the wildly popular video sharing app grilled by members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee for more than five hours about the practices of its parent company, ByteDance. And Congressman, uh, I'm guessing that it's probably not going out on a limb to suppose that, like most of your colleagues, you were unimpressed by what you heard from TikTok last week. Well, the uh, executive, Mr. Chu, had come around, and I think he talked about everybody on the committee except maybe three on our side. And one of the things I asked him initially in our early discussions was, Did, can anyone in China access this American data? And he kind of danced around on it. And uh, so at the hearing, I said, look, we had talked a while back. Now I'm going to ask you again. And at this time, he admitted that uh, some in China can look at this data. And it's important to note because the communist government requires every citizen to be able to give them information no matter what. Right. So when they say that we're going to protect your data, it's impossible because the, uh, the communist China uh, will get that data. Now, uh, some critics have pointed out, uh, and accurately so, what TikTok does is not substantively different than any other online platform in terms of the data that they collect, how they collect it, the algorithms that determine what content users see, the manipulation of those algorithms to spread disinformation, and so on. I understand the connection to the Chinese communist government makes it especially concerning with respect to TikTok. But does the fact that these other platforms are American-owned make these data collection, data harvesting practices any less concerning? A lot of folks are saying that what we really need is a comprehensive privacy policy to protect Americans across the board. Well, you're absolutely correct that in last year, uh, Republicans in the House Energy and Commerce Committee passed out a privacy bill. And unfortunately, the uh, Democrats did not uh, take it up on the House floor. So we're going to be bringing that legislation back. And the other thing is, is that's important to point out is just like, I, as I mentioned in my uh, opening statement last week, was that with TikTok, they quote unquote heat different types of uh, uh, stories, they push things. And so, you know, we've got uh, one instances like in the one case that I pointed out of a young girl who was 10 years old that uh, was in a blackout competition kind of thing. And what mm -hmm. this is, it's, it's strangulation, and she killed herself. Yeah. And so, the, and so what we want to do is two things. Number one, we need to get a privacy piece of legislation out there, but also 
Section 230 is this legislation that was passed back in the 90s when the uh, Internet was at its infancy saying that, look, if you're at one of these companies, that you're going to have a sword and a, a sword and a shield. What that means is you can take down at that time, it was going to be pornographic-type material, mm-hmm. and then you'd be shielded from lawsuits. Right. And so in this case, with TikTok, with this young girl who strangled herself, uh, in this competition type thing, that what happened uh, that the federal judge says that uh, Section 230 protected them. And so what we're talking about is looking also at Section 230 and saying, look, if you're a real, uh, one of these larger co- uh, companies out there, that you're not going to get all the protections out there that you've had in the past. And on the privacy side, we want to make sure that your data is being protected and why they're collecting it, especially for uh, kids uh, in the, that 13 to 17 age group that uh, are really being hit right now. Now, you mentioned uh, the reference legislation uh, that is on the table, that has been on the table to address uh, these concerns that uh, has uh, that has not passed Congress uh, in the past. Given the fact that there seems to be uh, bipartisan outrage at what's happening uh, with respect to TikTok, uh, judging simply by the hearings that were held last week, uh, and the CEO really grilled from both sides of the aisle. Do you think that that is enough to actually get something done now with respect to privacy and, uh, as you mentioned, addressing concerns with Section 230? Well, I think it will be because, first of all, uh, there's a couple of things have changed. Uh, when you saw the hearing last week, it was—I mean—you couldn't have tell if you weren't right to, watching with you watching the screen. It was a Republican or a Democrat right. who was asking the questions. The other issue is is that uh, the uh, chair and the ranking member last year both uh, brought this legislation forward. It was bipartisan, and I and I think that's important. But I think the big part of it is is that Nancy Pelosi is no longer speaker. Why is that important? Because California has their own privacy law, and so pretty much the California is saying we don't need to do anything. We're just going to make the rest of the country do what California does. And so I think with uh, Speaker Pelosi out that it's going to make a big difference there to get this legislation through on You reference uh, California's uh, privacy law, which, again, a number of uh, legislators in California, from California uh, in, the, uh, uh, in Congress uh, say that the federal protections are not as thorough as uh, California's uh, protections, are not as strict as California's protections. Are there, uh, are there areas where that legislation could be strengthened, could be beefed up? Well, you know, again, when you look at California, and I've worked on a lot of different pieces of legislation that had uh, interstate commerce uh, implications, and a lot of it deals with California. When you look at what California does on the auto admission side and and for gasoline blending, and they want everybody else to follow them, we're not going to do it. When California says that they were going to be all electric by 2035 and force the rest of the country to do it, we're not going to do it. And so I think that it's important that we craft our own legislation in Congress that is not only bipartisan in the House, but also that we can get passed in the Senate is going to be very important. Um, with respect to state legislation, uh, on that note, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, the state of Utah 
recently passed a law that dramatically restricts kids' access to social media. My understanding is that Ohio is considering similar legislation. We're talking about Republican-led states setting aside questions of how such legislation would be enforced without expanding the nanny state. Is that a good idea? Would would that be something that, that should be looked at? Well, I think it's important first that parents have some uh, ability to know what their kids are looking at online. Because, again, unfortunately, this is another thing that's happening out there with these online platforms is narcotics. And so it, it, we've had several instances of parents testifying before since it's heartbreaking. You know, their kids are good kids, but they decide, well, gee, I want to be able to feel good uh, uh, over the weekend or something like this. And never really used any drugs before, and so they go online and they buy a narcotic that they think is whatever that's going to make them feel great that's actually got fentanyl, and it's being produced from in Mexico for the cartels that's coming from China, and it only costs the cartels a dime to kill an American when they're selling that pill for 30 to $40. So we're seeing a lot of different things happening on these platforms, but I think that parents need to have the ability to say, look, you know, it's just like on your TV, you know, a lot of different things. You can have parental controls put on your TV. And uh, so when it comes to the Internet and what kids are seeing, and, uh, you know, we're seeing all of these studies now, especially for younger girls, that they feel horrible about themselves because they go online mm-hmm. and they're either harassed or they, 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 don't, they don't think they're living up to these all these standards. Right. And, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of teen suicides out there, and it's heartbreaking, mm-hmm. and we shouldn't be having this happen. Uh, a lot of uh, wide-ranging issues when it comes to uh, social media in general, TikTok in particular. And I, I guess the big question uh, that that folks are, are wondering at this point, uh, after what you heard last week from the CEO of TikTok, um, are you ready to support a ban on TikTok in the U.S.? My understanding is that uh, Kevin McCarthy has uh, said that there's uh, uh, working on legislation that would, in fact, ban TikTok in the U.S. There's likely to be some pushback because there are a number of users making a lot of money on the platform. Are you ready to ban TikTok in the U.S.? Well, I think for there's three things. I think when you look at the national security issues out there, when you look at the privacy issues, when you look at uh, what they what's kids out there and protecting them, this is a, uh, a platform that is controlled out of China, communist China, that Mm -hmm. they do have access, that, uh, yeah, I think that uh, there's a a lot of platforms here in the United States that people can utilize. But, uh, you know, the communist Chinese have infiltrated a lot of different areas, not only on this, when you look at on um, our social media, but around the world when it comes to energy, uh, rare earth minerals, food production. You know, that's another thing that I'm on legislation to say that the Congress Chinese should be buying land in the United States. So, uh, you know, they are not a friend. They are truly an adversary of the United States. And this is all, and this all goes back to the state and with communist China and that we've got to protect the American people out there. We will leave it there. Uh, again, uh, Congressman Bob Latta with us this morning. His take on last week's uh, hearings uh, by the House Energy and Commerce Committee uh, on the wildly popular video sharing app TikTok. Uh, the CEO being grilled for multiple hours uh, by members of the committee, including uh, Mr. Latta. Thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Chris, 
Have a great morning. Thank you very much. 20 years of making mornings good mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. A Florida man who was pulled over for driving 100 miles an hour. Uh, it doesn't say, oh, in a 40 mile an hour zone. 100 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour zone. Um, and you know, cops have, have heard it all, right? I mean, they've heard every excuse, but this one probably knew. Um, Pulled over for driving 100 plus in a 40 mile an hour zone, said he was speeding because he was trying to get his girlfriend to a job interview at Taco Bell. (laughs) Arrest records say 22 year old Javon Jackson had three kids in the back of his uh, in his vehicle when he was pulled over in Palm Springs. Uh, Police say Jackson was also swerving in and out of traffic and driving on a suspended license. So that's. But it was, it was all for a good reason. He was trying to get his girlfriend to a job interview at Taco Bell. He was booked for reckless driving and three counts of child neglect for the three kids in the backseat of the car. <laughs> it is not an acceptable excuse. I understand a job interview is important. Maybe you'll leave a little earlier next time. No word on whether his girlfriend got the job. Elsewhere in the uh, broken news, the odd and unusual side of the uh, headlines, a family in South Carolina, Myrtle Beach, uh, lost their pet bird. Uh, It was a uh, cockatiel named Joel. Joel. The name of the cockatiel. Apparently, the cockatiel flew out of the door. When the door was uh, open, the, the, the bird was out of its cage. Somebody opened the door. Bird was gone. But there is a happy ending. A woman posted lost bird flyers uh, saying the the bird's name was Joel because he particularly liked music by Billy Joel, specifically Uptown Girl, his favorite song. So meanwhile, an employee at a, a local amusement park spotted the bird and got in touch with the uh, the woman uh she said it had to be her bird because she played uptown girl and saw the bird bobbing its head up and down so <laughs> joel is back safely at home thanks <laughs> a little billy joel music there <laughs> i love it love a story with a happy ending uh let's see what else i we used to have a uh, pet bird. Sadly, our, our pet bird uh, passed away. But uh, birds do like music. They have this sense of rhythm when you play music. Our bird's favorite song, Stacy's Mom by Fountains of Wayne. That was <laughs> that was Maggie's favorite, favorite song. Every time that would come on, she'd start dancing. <laughs> birds do that. <clears throat> Never thought of it as being a, a way to identify the bird, though. That's pretty cool. Uh, elsewhere in the uh, broken news here this morning, how would you like to have this happen to you? Mill Creek, Washington, uh, Washington State, uh, homeowner, um, name is not given in the, uh, in the report, the name of the homeowner, uh, discovered something that he certainly didn't expect in his attic. 
when he smelled cigarette smoke. Suddenly, he's you know just sitting at home, minding his own business, and he notices an aroma of cigarette smoke. And uh, well, that's unusual. So he started investigating and found a stranger living in his attic. Police responded to the call from the uh, homeowner saying uh, that there was somebody in his uh, in his attic. And when he uh, investigated further, he noticed that he was missing several thousand dollars in cash, a number of personal documents like his passport. And uh, he believed that the person in his attic was responsible. And sure enough. Uh, All but approximately $30 of the stolen belongings were recovered, including the victim's wallet and foreign passport. According to the police department, the supposed intruder was apparently sleeping in a makeshift bed and had a heater up there in the attic. Space heater, the uh, suspect has been charged with burglary, second-degree theft, and drug-related charges. Man, that's not what you want to discover when you... Find a stranger living in your attic. How crazy is that? A um, couple of other items here from the broken news. A file of the odd and unusual. So the Yucaipa, California is the uh, dateline on this. Is that how you pronounce it? Yucaipa, California. A couple have been arrested for allegedly bilking their car insurance company. And posting about it on social media. When will the criminals ever learn? (laughs) If you're doing something illegal, don't post about it on social media. They apparently posted a video showing how they defrauded their car insurance company. It was like a how-to video. How to uh, scam your car insurance. Christopher and Kimberly Phelps are accused of intentionally causing dozens of crashes to, to collect the insurance money, such schemes allegedly included them slamming on the brakes for no reason, causing people to rear-end their car. They would post about their schemes to YouTube, sharing dash, dash cam clips of road rage incidents, traffic collisions, and more, that they all that they apparently caused. In total, they posted 162 videos depicting crashes, near crashes, and road rage incidents, Some of the videos showed their child in the car at the time. That's nice. Well, the family that scams together stays together. In this case, they stay together in jail. The uh, Sheriff's Department of San Bernardino County say deputies eventually came across the channel and linked it back to the family and then linked 23 collisions to 17 insurance claims from Mr. Phelps. He was charged with counts of assault with a deadly weapon and causing a crash to present a false claim. Both are felonies. He and his wife were arrested and held on a half a million dollar bond, charged with multiple counts of child endangerment as well, because their child was in the car. And all because they posted about it on social media. Actually, you know, it's a good thing that the criminals are this dumb, because without dumb criminals on this level... I mean, the cops would have a much harder job to do. Thank you. Making it easy. And finally, another animal story, and this one close to home. Uh, Cincinnati Animal Care shared a bizarre case on social media, which involves a barred owl, a carbon monoxide alarm, and a chimney. (laughs) Santa got nothing on this owl. 
Um, they even posted an image of an officer holding the seemingly bewildered bird. Never a dull moment for Hamilton County dog wardens, they wrote. A family was recently evacuated from their home due to a carbon monoxide leak caused by an owl stuck in their chimney. Uh, Lieutenant Connors of a Cincinnati Animal Care rescued the bird, who was evaluated and released while it is unknown why the owl decided to make a nest in the chimney. Uh, the uh, animal uh, experts suggest that uh, barred owls are cavity nesters, meaning they might mistake a chimney for a hollowed-out tree when they are seeking a place to lay their eggs. And unfortunately for these owls, they aren't likely to escape because they can't vertically fly back up once they go down the chimney. So the fact that uh, the family was alerted to the problem by the carbon monoxide uh, detector probably, not only did the carbon monoxide detector save the family's life, but probably saved the owl's life as well. And uh, something to keep in mind, they say, uh, because this is nesting season for the owls. Uh, so it might happen to you, too. But uh, happy ending. So that's a crazy story. There you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Finley's Andy Ritz on becoming a Finley Rotarian. After 35 years working as a pediatrician in Finley, I wanted to give back to the community, but not at my job, but as a service that would reach many people. The best way to do this was for me to join Finley Rotary, and that's what I did in February of 2022. To become part of an organization that brings together business, professional leaders to provide community service and advance goodwill, contact Findlay Rotary at findlayrotary.org and click on join. This message provided by WFIN. Time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Spring is here and that means spring cleaning time, right? Uh, The time when we do a deep dive, clear out all the clutter, Uh, do a good deep clean on our homes, or at least we say we do. But when was the last time you actually did a deep clean? Uh, According to a new survey, 2,000 Americans, 10% say that they have never cleaned their dishwasher or their washing machine. Now, I know on the surface you think, well, why do you need to clean a washing machine, or a clean, a dishwasher. But there's a lot of gunk that gets uh, accumulated, the stuff that is washed off your clothes or off your dishes or whatever uh, in these appliances. And they do need a good deep cleaning from time to time. No time like spring cleaning to do that. But 10% have never done it. On average, it takes two hours to lightly clean a home Five hours to do a deep clean, is according to the survey. takes about five hours to do a good deep cleaning of your home. That includes uh, dusting all of your large appliances, washing your windows, you know, doing everything that needs to be done. 32% of Americans miss under the stove. There's another... And I have to admit, that's probably the last place... <laughs> That we clean under the stove and under the refrigerator. I mean, because you have to pull those things out to give it a good uh, deep clean. 
do you go that far in your uh, spring cleaning? Um, only uh, 32% or 32% of Americans don't. 86% say they often clean their showers. Well, that's good. Again, you wouldn't think, but that you need to do that. Uh, 86% often clean their showers. 21% don't know how to clean their air conditioner. So again, we're coming up on that time of the year. Uh, those things need to be periodically cleaned as well. So all of those things definitely should be on your list uh, for your spring cleaning chores. Give your home a good deep clean. And if you don't know how to do some of those things, as the survey suggests, now is the time to learn. So joining us this morning with a preview of upcoming shows, events, programs, and such, the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts as we head into the spring. Heather Klo, Executive Director, MCPA, thanks very much for uh, dropping by. Thank you. And uh, let's see here, what's going on in the uh, in the month of uh, in the month of April? It's hard to believe that we're talking about April. It already, is hard to believe already. But, uh, but spring is on its way. Yes. Absolutely. Um, well, the first thing I want to point out is that the Ohio Watercolors show in our gallery is ending at the end of this month, or yeah. so end of this week, actually. Yeah, right. Um, and if you haven't been in to check it out, you should definitely do that. It comes through once a year. It's juried artists from all over the state, all in watercolors, and it's a great show. You definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, that uh, actually affords us the opportunity, and I know we've talked about it before, but uh, I, I think it's it's kind of a hidden gem within the Marathon Center uh, is the uh, Fisher Wall Art Gallery. Yes, it's a beautiful space. We get um, probably six or so exhibits through every year. Mm-hmm. It's everything from advanced high school students to we've had artists from Japan. So it, wow. it's all over the place. And um, we get this one monthly, the watercolors monthly, I mean, yearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a volunteer group of committee that chooses the art. And it, it's always a a great space and it is uh always open whenever the marathon yep. center is open and uh even through the week when there's nothing going on absolutely anytime yeah. the box office is open it's open yeah. you can come in sometimes there might be an art club going on in there with some kids making art but <laughs> you can still look and and it is free it I mean, is free so. yes absolutely you can come before a show you can come at intermission come just during the during the day when you want to get out of the rain. And that's up in the upper level. It's on right? the top it's floor. Top yes, floor. exactly. So okay. on one side is like the um, gallery and then the other side is where you go into the balcony. Okay. So kind of give you an idea of where yeah. that is. But if you've never been, uh, it is definitely worth uh, checking out, especially this week uh, it is, for the yeah. uh, watercolors. Uh, so what else is going on? So we have another Live at Arms show coming up on Thursday. This is with a band called Cold Chocolate. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they sort of merge funk and folk. Funk it's, and folk. Yeah. They're okay. a Boston-based band. Um, really, really talented. I actually saw them years ago and have been wanting to book them ever since. So I'm excited to finally get them to Finley. That is a uh, rather unique combination. It is. That's what I love about Americana music. Yeah. Because it has this bass and all this traditional folk and country and bluegrass, mm. but yeah. they make it into something new. Yeah. That that will be uh, interesting. That is on Thursday. Thursday, yes. Okay. And uh, tickets for that? How do, you buy tickets for the uh, Live at Arms series the same way as yeah, a, yep, at mcpa.org, yeah. and you can get fifteen dollars standing tickets okay. all the way up to our um, 
high top tables, which are the, the best place to sit, and those are fifty dollars. Okay, uh, so that is uh, coming up this week. What else it is, is. Uh, going on as we come up on the end of this month and into the month of April? Yeah. So we have a school day show on Friday, the Lightning Thief. So kids come from all over the county on that. Um, we're hosting a UF choral concert on Sunday, I believe, at 3 o'clock, and that's okay. free. No no tickets required. Just come and enjoy the music. Okay. And then Community Read is coming up. That's a partnership with the Hancock Library. Yes. Uh, again, that is the uh, feature event uh, on Thursday, April 6th. Right. And there exactly. are still tickets available for there that? There are, yep, and they're just $10. I've read the book. It's a fun book. It's a really good book. It's one of those that you read and you think it's a little bit light, and then, but there's a lot to discuss in it. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be a, a really interesting uh, presentation, and that, again, is uh, April 6th. There are still tickets uh, for that if you are uh, taking part in the Community Read uh, event. As we uh, head into the month of of April, deeper, deeper into the month of April. Uh, we've got a couple of other shows to uh, yeah. make mention of. We want to uh, talk about Point of the Evening, mm-hmm. which is a benefit for the Chance to Dance Foundation that helps fund kids taking dance lessons. That's an annual event as well. Um, wonderful artists on stage. And this one is a focus on youth making art. So there's a, a real... Um, talented group of youth that are going to be participating and we'll have something in the gallery and um, people on stage and that's always a fun event and then we have one um, at the end of April we have another live at arms show with Scott Mulvahill who sings and plays the upright bass he was actually a member of Ricky Skaggs band oh um, for about five years Kentucky Thunder yep Mm -hmm. and he's got a solo career and He'll be there at the end of April. That'll be fun, too. Uh, again, the uh, Live at Arms series is really fun because they are so intimate and, and uh, all of that. So tickets for all of these shows uh, are available on the website. Yes, right? mcpa.org. Okay. And I know starting to look ahead, uh, when we're talking about spring, summer is going to be right around the corner. And uh, I summer is not a, uh, a as busy, busy a time in terms of performances, uh, especially the bigger performances, at the Marathon Center, but you've got lots of stuff coming up. In this we summer. do. We have some rental shows, so Classic Seeger's coming, and then Boogie on Main is now Boogie on the Block, and yep. it's back on on June 2nd, and we're super excited that Nashville Crush is going to be the mm. the artist this year. So yeah. I think they'll bring out, bring out a big crowd to kick off the summer. So And, and these are important events uh, to support everything that you do within the community. I mean, again, when we have you here, we talk about the shows that are coming up, but so much of what you do uh, is involved with the community behind the scenes. Absolutely. You know, I I kind of say that we're a concert promoter, but we're also a nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. And we have education programs and free concerts in the park and all of our shows and all of our events help fund those we invest that right back into the community with all of the uh youth programs and even adult programming and and uh, things of that nature uh, again uh some time ago uh the marathon center kind of enveloped uh the uh, arts partnership as uh, folks yeah, it's w- been five remember. years now so, yeah. yeah so, so we have all those programs
programs. All of those program, all of those programs continue uh, under the umbrella of the uh, Marathon Center for the Performing Arts. So these uh, events that we've got coming up in the summertime really critical. To they are. Yep. Happen. They completely support those programs. Yeah. And if folks want to learn more about those programs, not just about the shows, but you have information about those programs on the website. Too. Absolutely. Under the education or outreach header, it's mcpa.org and everything you want to know about MCPA can be located there. The goal being to really get everybody involved. Yes, uh, absolutely. First thing I say when people ask me about MCPA is that we are a community performing arts. Uh, we've got a link up on our webpage for more information. Go to uh, goodmornings.net for all of that. Again, Heather Clough at the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts with us uh, this morning. We head into uh, April and look forward to uh, spring and summer events too. Heather, thanks very much for dropping by. Thank you. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. And that, of course, is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, you would think that dealing with the pandemic has taught us some valuable lessons about ways to better manage public health emergencies. But has it? We'll take a closer look at the latest Ready or Not report from the Trust for America's Health. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.